Welcome to the HBK High Performance Podcast with Michael B. Ross, a podcast designed to help leaders develop the character, skills, and passion needed to lead fulfilled and impactful lives. Here's Michael. Well, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you who are on the HBK High Performance Podcast, just so you know, we are recording this on Zoom. So if you would like to also watch the video of this, it will be on our YouTube channel, which is HBK High Performance. So you can check that out. Please subscribe and like and share and comment because I, I believe this is going to be a fantastic interview. And then for those of you on the podcast, if you want to reach out to me or to our special guest today, Rennie Curran, uh, I will put contact information in so you can connect with us on social media and uh, for further services. So today I've got Rennie Curran with me. He has been a, a guest in the past, but Rennie is... Um, Number one, just a great human being, a good friend, uh, a great son, a father, and you name it as a human being, just an amazing person. He's got a, an excellent track record in his life of successes, and you know he continues that success in whatever he does. Rennie is a former NFL football player. He played for the Tennessee Titans. He played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He also played for... Uh, Edmonton, right, in, in the Canadian League. Uh, he played for the University of Georgia in college where he was a two-time All-American. Uh, he was a super hard hitter, and he got some awards for smashing on people, which is awesome. If you're going to play football, you might as well hit people hard, right? right. Um, so uh, Rennie is also – he is now a speaker, and he's a coach, uh, trainer, and he speaks on personal brand, he speaks on mindset, he speaks on leadership and personal development, and he speaks all over the country, and he's had some great connection. He's connected to a lot of different organizations, and um, he helps young athletes. So I do recommend if you are looking for someone who can coach you and help you get over some struggles in your life or help you develop because all of us, if we're going to develop in life, we need someone to walk along that journey with us. And Rennie's a great listener. He, he shares timely wisdom. So I'd say reach out to Rennie Curran and, and book him for a workshop that you can have a speaking event or as a coach for your team. He can really help your executives go to another level. I've seen him do it. I, I've watched him in action. He's fantastic. Randy, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Glad to be on. Yeah, man. So, Renny and I, we've been friends for years. We actually shared a stage for a mutual friend of ours. Ooh, it's been a while now, six, six years yeah. ago, maybe. And we've kept in touch. And, you know, at some points, we were in a lot more touch than others. And we've been able to do some joint things even after that. But uh, Renny and I are bonded in friendship. You know, uh, we're both athletes. I play basketball. Rennie doesn't, he doesn't mm -hmm. come on the court. I think it's because he doesn't want to show me up. But he, you know, he says he doesn't really play sure. basketball. But, <laughs> but um, no, we just are bonded. We do very similar things in the marketplace, and our hearts are really just to help people grow and thrive. But he and I talked the other day with, that, with all the social unrest that we found, you know, going on in America. And I've been just deeply, deeply convicted 
by what's happened in our country and my ignorance and um, not consciously, but, but unconsciously ignoring it for years and years and years. And even having cynicism and uh, my thoughts that come out about, you know, the movement of Black Lives Matter and some of the things that have happened with the police over many, many years, just kind of rolling my eyes and saying, oh, it's not as bad as, as everyone's making it out to be, or other things that have gone through my mind that I'm sure we'll share today. And so Rennie and I had a conversation. It was probably about six or seven months ago where I asked him, I said, Rennie, you know, you grew up in Georgia. It's the deep South. You're black. And, and Rennie is a first generation African-American. Um, and, and I want him to share his story about that. But I said, what, what was your experience like mm-hmm. growing up as a black man in the deep South? And he started to tell me the story and it was, I think it was at that point that I started to really get a, a much broader perspective. You know, I had grown up in an area where, you know, I, I grew up around black people, Latinos, and, you know, had my experiences, but I never really put myself in, in their shoes to say, what's life like from their filter, from their perspective? And so I always butted up against that idea of white privilege and, oh my goodness, I've worked for everything I have, you know, and, and yeah. you kind of get frustrated with that attitude. You're like, why would you say I'm privileged? I work hard, you know, I'm, but when Rennie shared his story, it just really convicted me and, and made me realize there are things that he has, he has had to work through that I will never have to work through. So Rennie, thanks for your, your vulnerability and also your vulnerability to be able to come on here and share with our audience who is predominantly, you know, white middle-aged Americans kind of just sharing your, your story and, and kind of giving us some perspective because I think to bridge the gap in our Mm -hmm. country, we've got to just be open. We've got to be vulnerable and we've got to validate each other and be empathetic and uh, not be prideful and get our back up. So, uh, I'm going to shut up now and I just love for you to kind of share your history story and what's it like to grow up as a black man in, in America, uh, where it is predominantly white and there are definitely unconscious biases that, that we don't pay attention to. Um, yeah. So I'll just start just really back from my childhood and, you know, I'm hoping everybody that is listening and thank you for giving me the platform to, to share and to speak. And, you know, I think it's so important what you said just about, coming from a place of love and not uh, really trying to demonize anybody. Cause I, I don't think at the end of the day, there's people out there who are looking at this and are just straight up hateful and are just, you know, just pridefully ignorant <laughs> about these types of things. I think there are more, um, more so than ever before. There are people who want to learn and want to listen. Of course, there's always going to be those who completely shut out the idea that things like racism exist or oppression or any type. Um, but I think the majority are really trying trying to learn and open up to the idea of the existence of these types of things. And I think that's where it starts, is actually wanting to know, wanting to educate yourself and wanting to see and understand a perspective that's different uh, than yours. And I, I think once you can take that approach, uh, it, it only leads to growth, you know, and that's with anything, whether it's in the business world or whether it's in a relationship that's not going well or whether it's with social issues, it's just 
having an opening to wanting to learn, wanting to change and um, kind of getting tired of the, the same old norm uh, and then being able to see your blind spots as well. So like I said, I'll start with my childhood and, and basically, as you mentioned, uh, both my parents were Liberian immigrants. So I had a completely different outlook just on life early on, uh, really understanding my culture. Uh, and as I grew, um, it was definitely something that was was tough early on because uh, when you think about it, anything concerning Africa or the culture or whatnot, it necessarily wasn't uh, anything of pride, especially when you look at how the how it's represented in this country. A lot of times you're going to see things about wildlife. You're going to see things about the indigenous life, but you're not going to hear about the rich cultural heritage and the values and, and the different things that make up uh, African family and African uh, village or just all the things that really make it great. Like, for example, I, my great-grandfather was a chief. So he built his own village. He was a leader in his town. Um, you know, there's so many different things that I was able to take from that, just understanding the lineage and the heritage that I come from that conflicted with the narrative that's presented to you as a as an African-American male in this country. When you think about the school system, for example, which there's major inequality there. I mean, you talk about social issues and racism and all that, but it, it, a lot of it starts there, honestly. Um, the yeah. first thing you learn about yourself as a, as a black male in this country is that you're a slave. You're, you're brought on a slave ship. They don't tell you anything about your heritage be, beyond that. So what does that do to your, your perception of yourself? You know, what, is that, what does that do to your self-worth? when that's the first thing you hear about yourself. And then you compound with the images that are presented to you through the media, whether it's like through a sitcom or whether it's through a movie or through music, all those different things play such a major influence on who you believe you can become and who you believe you are. Uh, and that's a major uh, issue, I, I feel like. And, and for me, I had to really learn how to navigate that as a young child. So. I'm in school, I'm learning about these things, I'm watching TV, I'm seeing Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and, and these different images that are presented to me. And then I'm at home with my African parents, my Liberian parents, who are teaching me about the values and, and about how we do things in our household. Because once you're in that household, you're in Liberia, you're no longer in America. You know, all your values <laughs> and the things that you understand perspective yeah. starts at home. So, uh, and then I went to a, a church that was mostly uh, West African. And so I learned all these different values, but then I'm battling, uh, like I said, being in the school system, uh, seeing the images on, on uh, media and whatnot. And then uh, about 10 years old is when we moved to the suburbs. So we moved from an area that was predominantly African-American and Hispanic to an area that was majority white. I'd say about 90%. We were the one of only, uh, I'd say out of probably 100 houses, we were probably two uh, the second black family that moved in there. So like things changed drastically. So now I have to learn a whole new culture, right? Is this a culture shock? You go in and you're the only black male in your classroom. And it was, it was a challenge. Um, my first, uh, my first experience, I, I was like eight, about to turn nine years old, but within, I'd say my first to second month there, I already had, I had my first experience with racism. Uh, in the neighborhood, we we made friends with a little girl. I think I told you the story. We made friends with a yep. little girl that lived down the street from me, and we we're all playing basketball like most kids. And we get to that point where we're kind of tired, we're ready to take a break, and she's like, "I'm about to go get some water." 
you know, uh, you guys want anything? And she's innocent and joyful as any child will be at that age. So she goes in to through her garage and leaves the door open. And we, uh, me and my sister, I got two older sisters. So me and my uh, middle sister, extremely close. We, we did everything together. So we're hanging out with her. She goes in to talk to her mom about getting some water. And then we overhear the conversation. And mom's like, tell them to get their own water. Like, I don't just basically like in that spirit of they're not welcome here. And knowing where we were, like the fact that we were the only, you know, pretty much the only black family in the in the uh, neighborhood. I mean, it just struck me, um, you know, in a way that I had never felt before. And it just started this whole chain of just like this awareness um, for me of being a black male uh, and then understanding how society received me and how they yeah. saw me. And so on one hand, I was on that edge of like innocence and like being a child. And then I noticed that as I grew, as I became 11, 12 years old, that that innocence started to shift to being seen as like a problem, being seen as like a threat without, I mean, just by existing in certain spaces. So that's, you know, walking down the street in my neighborhood or that's uh, going trick-or-treating and knocking on certain doors or you know, I, I tried that. <laughs> That's when I tried to get into entrepreneurship. So walking around my lawnmower and just getting getting stairs and nobody say. Hi. So all those things make you really internal. You internalize a lot of those things. And so even if somebody isn't uh, racist or isn't looking at you funny, you still it's like that internal conversation that happens because it has happened before. Yeah. So and that that starts young. And so um, the thing that that really, of course, changed things was football, you know, being able to uh, join a team, being able to see and learn different perspectives. And, and sports is the most amazing thing because it brings so many different races together. It's a great equalizer. When you get guys, and I I'm, I know without a doubt that I had guys on my teams whose parents did not necessarily, did. some of them were racist, some of them didn't like, but we were all, we all became a family because we all sweat together, we fought together. And I mean, it, it changed everything. It changed my perception. Like as I grew, as I became a University of Georgia player and whatnot, it changed how, how people perceive me. Um, you know, and, and you see a lot of athletes who speak out and, and talk about different things when it comes to oppression and whatnot. And people say, Oh, how, how would you know about that? Like you're, you're an athlete. You're, you got all this money. Like, what do you know about oppression? What do you know about this? But I realized that, yes, I was in this, I was on this team. I was seeing in this light in the community, as a star athlete and whatnot. But the minute I take that jersey off, I'm still a black man. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, at 15 years old, you know, I, I'm still, th that was the craziest thing that I saw. So to give you an example, I would get pulled over for no reason, right? And so the conversation would go one way with the police officer. It'd usually be negative until they looked at my license plate and saw that my name is Rennie Kern. And then the whole the whole conversation shifted, right, to something positive. Like, oh, man, you, yeah, Georgia, yeah. And it's all good. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what if my name wasn't Rennie Kern? What if I didn't play football? What if I didn't have – so it's like, it almost like sports provided that shield. It's, it's a, type of, a type of privilege, um, speaking of privilege. And I want to clarify that, too, just from my perspective, because I know when people hear that word, you know, the white privilege thing, that it yeah. can be something frustrating. And, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, I, I think – one thing that's not talked about is that we all have a type of privilege. 
know, I have a privilege being, we have privileges being males. We have privileges being healthy. Um, you know, to have two parents is a privilege to uh, be in America, you know, in certain parts of America, that's a privilege depending on what zip code you're born in. <laughs> so everybody has privilege. And, and to say that somebody has white privilege is not saying that you didn't have to work hard or that life isn't tough or that, yeah. you know, nobody else has benefits or, or that we're saying you're better than us. What it is yeah. saying is, there's just certain things that you don't have to think about. And, yeah. you know, I'll give a perfect example. Like for me, being the youngest in my family, I don't have to worry about always being in charge. Like using my older sister takes that role. Like there's just things I don't have to worry <laughs> about. And I feel like <laughs> as, as a white male, as a white person, there, there are just certain things that never, yeah. that really generally for the most part don't have to cross your mind or that you don't have to consider um, which it, you know, should it be that way? No, but that's the reality. Just like with any privilege, you know, do you deserve it? Do we deserve any privilege that we had? Are we responsible for it? Like, no, should we feel guilty for it? No, but it is something that exists. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, those, those are some of my thoughts, man. I don't know if you have any, any other questions, but those are just some of the, the thoughts and experiences that I've had. Yeah, you told me, you also told me about something that it struck me. I'll never forget it. You said that when you were out later in your childhood, like when you'd be out after eight o'clock or something, all of a sudden police officers would start showing up in the different neighborhoods and you would get, you know, tell us a little bit about that. And what did that do, you know, for you? Cause I know you're a super, you're a super smart guy. You're super disciplined. Yeah. Uh, you're super aware you know, what, what did that do for you as far as like, oh, I, I got to play by a different set of rules. Right. And, you know, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that, that started, uh, like I said, my, my early days and it still happens now, you know, it's not like these things just happen and then it just stops. Like at any time I have to always be aware. I always have to think about how the world receives me, how the world receives me and how I carry myself, how I'm dressed, uh, you know, my body language, I had to, <laughs> to think about every single move every time I walk outside of my door, like, uh, you know, being 16, 17 years old, I got my first, my first truck and I happen to be driving in the, the wrong side of town and I get pulled over. The first question I ask isn't for license or registration is, is this car stolen? Do you have drugs in here? Are there guns in here? Uh, and then from there, it doesn't stop there. The, the, I don't get the benefit of the doubt. The police officer is asking me to get out of my car and it's searching my car for no reason, no, no warrant, no, there's no smell of alcohol. Like I, I never touched alcohol or weed or anything until like I got in the league basically, but yeah. they still will find a way to have some suspicion. And then all of a sudden I'm out outside of my car and I'm getting searched and I'm, I can't leave until, uh, I can't leave until he, he searches my car. And it's still like, this still yeah. happens to this day. Like I, maybe like uh, six months ago, six, eight months ago, I was going, I decided to go uh, early to a speaking engagement. I had a, a elementary school I was speaking to, it was in North Georgia. And, uh, you know, I, I drove out there, it's probably about 10 o'clock uh, when I went out there, cause it was, it was like maybe two, three hours away. So, and the engagement was at eight o'clock. And so I want to make sure I was good. I didn't have to get up and drive. So went there the night before and stopped to get gas. When I turned out from the gas station around like 1030, 
Uh, it was nobody on the road, like old country town, like just me in the road. And then all of a sudden I noticed the cars following me and, you know, I'm, I'm still good. I'm driving or whatever. I was on the phone with the girl I was dating at that time. And um, all of a sudden get pulled over just out of nowhere. And it's now about 11, 1130. And so the picture is you're on the road, like just you and nobody else. It's dark, no lights. Police officer rolls up and he just, all he says is I need you to get out of your car. And that's it. Like, I'm like, what did I do? It's like, just step out of your car, please. And I, of course, my heart's being fast. Like I've been, I've, used, I've seen at this point how many times situations like this have happened and how, what it's turned out to be. And yeah. the thing about it too is like, if anything were to go down, uh, he decides he, see, he feels that he's a threat or anything like that. I get shot, like, it's my word against, it's my character against his, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, in that situation, even though I know I didn't do anything wrong, even though I know I'm completely innocent and I'm, I'm about to go impact a community, like, I still have to be at his mercy, basically. So not only do I, I get out the car, but and not only does he, you know, search me and put me through all these sobriety tests and whatnot, then he asked me repeatedly, is there anything in your car? Is there drugs? Is there guns? I'm like, dude, no, like I have nothing. I'm going to speak at a school. Still persist, persist and would not like then, like after a while, two other cop, uh, cars pull up and then uh, would not let me leave until you search my car. And I'm just like, it, it just is a, I don't even know the word for it. It's, it's humiliating. It's, um, uh, you feel like your manhood's being taken from you. Um, mm -hmm. Like you really have no rights in those situations. Mm -hmm. As much as people say, oh, know your rights, know your rights. Nah, you ain't got no rights. If a police officer makes up in his mind that that like you're in this town to do some something or whatever, or he has yep. some suspicion or uh, he sees you in whatever light that he sees you or has whatever bias, you don't have no rights at that point. And if you try in, in any way to stand up for yourself or stand on your rights, it's always seen as like you're you're resisting or you're being defiant or whatever. And so th those is some of the most challenging thing. And to get somebody to understand what that feels like, it's the hardest until you until you know what that feels like. And, and that's just once that's just with police officers, right? Like there's situations where I've gone into stores and been followed around. I'm just trying to get a candy bar. <laughs> and yeah. I'm being followed around like I saw, every time I look back, the person just happens to be in my aisle. Um, you know, situations like that that have happened to the point where it's like, all right, or being in the classroom with a teacher that just yeah. believes that you're that problem child. So any anything you do, everybody else can be talking and you talk, but you're the one that gets point, uh, you know, that gets uh, highlighted, right, or sent to the office or whatnot. And the, the tough thing about it is when somebody else hasn't experienced it, then it's a, almost like you're trying to play the victim and you're trying to say, oh, this uh, woe is me. But when it <laughs> when it's your reality, man, it's just it's it's so real. It's it's so real. I mean, even in the, even in the NFL, man, like when I made it to the NFL, uh, I could go on and on about the experiences, like the, yeah. the biases and the microaggressions. And that's what people I want people to understand is it's not overt racism like men. Notice I I did I never mentioned somebody just outright coming out and calling me the N word or like saying anything uh, like they're gonna hang me or anything like that. It's no extreme like that, 
but it's those little microaggressions. It's just the differences in how you're treated, those small little differences that stand out over right. time and that make you numb. Uh, even in the NFL, I had guys who were put in higher positions than me just because of perception, all right? There was a, a teammate who I was actually helping um, when I was on, with Tampa Bay. And the coaches, after a while, they were like, okay, we're going to give him this position because we feel – they told me straight up, we feel like you don't have the mental capacity to handle these things. Not knowing I was helping him, like, to get to, get to learn, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just, like, experiences like that, man, it, it really – is disheartening and a lot of people experience that in, in different areas of our society, whether it's in the corporate space or yeah. whether it's, you know, in the school system, whether it's in, you know, sports, I mean, in so many different areas. And if people aren't aware of their biases and aware yeah. of like their blind spots, they can very easily be part participating in these things without even knowing it. I mean, it could be as yeah. simple as if you're a CEO of a company or somebody who's in charge of hiring, and you see a certain name pop up, right? And you just all of a sudden, you see a Muhammad pop yeah. up or you see a Letitia pop up. And then all of a sudden you get these preconceived notions, not being aware of those things. Yep. It's, it's detrimental. And it, it I yep. think that's the true work that has to be done is for people to be aware of their blind spots and their biases. And because it's not, when I think about the issues in our country, it's not the overt racism, it's not the guy with the KKK and the hood. Leon, they do exist, yes, and they're out there. Yeah, but those are the everyday things yeah. of it that fly under the radar. Yeah. Well, thank Randy. I just appreciate so much. I, I think it's you saying that. You know, it, it's so true. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I'm a behavioral scientist, so you know, getting down, you know, when when I focus on culture leadership and change behavior that's my specialty you yeah know? um and i told you the other day I, i'm just i i guess from that idea that culture the what is your culture is your underlying assumptions or your underlying mm -hmm. philosophies yep. that that's what your culture is and when i go and, and work with organizations that's what i'm looking for what are the what's the water cooler talk mm -hmm. what are what's going on in people's minds when we do a anonymous survey what what is coming out yeah. You know, the reality where nobody, I don't have to worry about what anybody says. I'm about to get my, I'm about to get my word in now, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they put their word in and what, how they really feel. Yeah. And, and I told you, you know, I am, I, I can't speak for all middle-aged white Americans. I can't just like, you can't speak for all black, you know, young athletes and, mm -hmm. and uh, successful entrepreneurs in America. You can't. You can't do it, but right. we can share a perspective that may or may not uh, reflect how other people are feeling. So I told you, you know, how I grew up, you know, I grew up in, a, in an area that was pretty diverse. And, and because I play basketball, you know, the higher level basketball you go, I mean, it's, it's more and more the higher level you go, there's, there's predominantly black athletes. Mm -hmm. And there were a few teams I was on that I was the only white dude. Mm. Or one of very few white guys. Right. And, um, but basketball was the cause that brought us together. Right. You know, so my parents were overtly against racism. My dad grew up in an area where he saw some things that I think scarred him. Mm -hmm. And he, he was so adamant. I mean, we weren't, if there was any uh, uh, racist 
undertone in my house. I remember one time a guy said something. It was about Shaq, and it wasn't like an overt comment. My dad just ripped him a new one. Um, yeah. I, I never forget it because that's but that's how I grew up. Right. And then you know, I even I even dated black girls. You know, it wasn't. Mm. It just was never an issue for me. Then I'm in the military, where I was one of few white people in my entire division. Yeah. We had mostly Pacific Islanders, Filipinos, because I was stationed in Japan, mm -hmm. uh, uh, lots of Asian, uh, Latinos, and, and black, and then white. We were, we together were minorities, and we joke about that. Like yeah, yeah. you guys even said, now you know what it's like to, to live in my shoes for a little while, you know? It's, <laughs> it's just, it was a joke, but yeah. I, I didn't think anything of it. Mm -hmm. and, and I get home, and you get into corporate America, Mm -hmm. And and again, I can't speak for every every white middle aged uh, uh, American male, but I can say things started to creep in, man. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm mostly embarrassed of is like, um, here, here's an example, and I'd like to hear your response to this because yes. I think it's important. If we're gonna if we're gonna change, if you change, if you can get the the subconscious mind to come out into right. the conscious thought, we can change it. That's mm -hmm. what we can change, but it has to be like we talked about, loving, open dialogue to say, right. hey, Rennie, this is what's going on. Help me understand. I say these things partly out of ignorance, mm -hmm. so I need educated. And the same vice versa. You know, there, I think I'm assuming that there's also with black Americans this assumption about white Americans. And until we have that open dialogue and go, no, here's what's really going on. Like, yeah. here's an example. Here's an example of how I started to allow things to creep in. Like the idea of white privilege. And mm -hmm. it's like, there's every opportunity is available. This is America and the, and the fight for freedom here is for everybody. You know, right. assuming that the freedoms that are afforded to me are the same as they are afforded to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And then like the movement of Black Lives Matter now, the organization, the statement versus the organization are very two different things, exactly, you know, yeah. uh, but the statement Black Lives Matter, it's like, well, you know, you get that. Well, all lives matter because it buds up against that that subconscious feeling mm -hmm. that you're singling me out as right. a white male saying my life doesn't matter. And you're, you're elevating yourself where if there's a problem, we need to focus on it. Yeah. Right. And that's that's the unconscious bias that I've had is like, well, all lives matter. Like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? Like, I, because I was not willing, I was not willing to be convicted right. by the true issues. It was butting up against my own unconscious biases. So I got defensive and and human beings have to know this. If you get defensive right. about something, it's probably hitting a pain point in there mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm hmm. And then, you know, the other thing about being, a, again, a white, middle-aged and even, even white privileged American is you hear things like about people being racist really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is what I told you the other day, where, I'm so, where I am so embarrassed mm. is that as a white, middle-aged male, my feeling gets like this, Randy, like, honestly, I feel like I'm so ignorant Mm. That I, and it's partly my fault because I haven't honestly dove in and right. said, let me, let me spend time in the communities 
and let, let me get the perspective that I need that, yeah. that I say, well, I don't want to say anything because, because here, here, again, you can hear the bias here, but I'm just being honest mm-hmm. is, well, if I say anything at all and I say it the wrong way, I'm going to be called a racist, a sexist, a bigot, and I can't win. So I'm just not going to say anything. You know, I'm so tired of, you know, being typecasted. I've worked hard for everything. Again, back to that me, 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 selfish mentality. And that's, and again, I, I'm so sorry. And I'm so embarrassed no. by my own un- underlying philosophies. But, you know, I don't think I'm alone. I, I'm not going to speak for everybody else. But I would say I don't think I'm alone in that. Mm-hmm. And there's also a couple of other things, Renny. So in the 90s, I grew up in the 90s. I love Tupac. I love Biggie Smalls. I loved Easy e Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg. I love those dudes. Like, that's what I listened to, much, much to the chagrin of my parents. They didn't like some of the lyrics. But, but the perception, okay, that those guys brought. And I think it was, it was backlash to saying, you know what, if you're going to treat us like this, well, we're going to act like it then. You know, if you want. Mm-hmm. But the idea that, from the white perspective and and most of the album sales went to suburban white kids right Right, okay and and so the idea is that put i think that typecasted Mm -hmm. black america to suburban white folks right and that is oh black people are thugs or they just and so that being ingrained in people's minds is absolute trash Mm -hmm. it's absolute garbage but that perception gets put into the, the subconscious bias. And black people are cool. You know, they're cooler <laughs> than white, white people. And they, they dress better. And I can't get away with that. You know <laughs> what I mean? And I think with that came a little bit of resentment and jealousy. I can't, again, can't speak for everybody else. I'm just mm-hmm. observing as well. All of that, when you, when you separate the value of human life from what people do, you can begin to create an entity mm-hmm. in a division. And so there's this entity I think has been created, which is black, white. And your entity is you're cool, you dress cool, you're, you, right. you know, predominant athletes that are just, you know, you hear the BS dude about like black people right. have uh, better muscle twitches than white guys. <laughs> and that's why they can <laughs> jump better, which is complete garbage. Yeah. But, there, but, but what, what I'm doing though, with that is I'm, I'm actually creating a separate entity, mm-hmm. you see, and, and not uh, let's celebrate the fact that, dude, your, your dad, your, your grandpa was a chief, man. Like, how cool is that? Why can't we celebrate heritage and, and look back and, and talk about the differences? My family's Scottish. I can, I can uh, trace my lineage back to the 11th century. You know, I, I know my history. Why can't we celebrate that together? Right, um, right. Wow, wasn't that insightful? For the sake of time, we're going to pause right there. Tune in next week for the second half of Michael's interview with Rennie Curran. Be sure to take immediate action on the ideas that compelled you from today's podcast. For information about the courses, resources, and services available from HBK High Performance, visit hbkln.com.